6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 9 and 10. Trust not in any brother. I guess that's what triggered it. For every brother will utterly supplant, and every neighbor will walk in slanders. They will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. Thine habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, saith the Lord. And I guess my whole thesis in the last couple of paragraphs was just that that description is not unique to just the times that Jeremiah was dealing with in, in, in the nation of Judah. I submit to you that it's painfully uh, in our society and getting worse. That's my real thing. Every, everybody, every group has had their, every era has had their problems. But I, my, I submit to you that that's a problem of serious proportions in our lives. Verse 7, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and test them, and how shall I do for the daughter of my people? Their tongue is like an arrow shot out, it speaketh deceit. One speaketh peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in heart he lieth in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, saith the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? For the mountains will I take up a weeping and wailing, and for the habitations of the wilderness a lamentation, because they are burned up, so that none can pass through them. Neither can men hear the voice of the cattle. Both the fowl of the heavens and the beast are fled. They are gone. And I will make Jerusalem heaps and a den of jackals, and I will make of the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Now, that sounds like flowery language. If you were hearing uh, Jeremiah, you'd say, gee, Jeremiah, you're getting a little carried away there. Are you going to punish the animals and the, in the, in the land itself? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, this idea of visualizing Jerusalem, this vibrant, uh, vital city as a den of jackals, it wasn't many years when the total captivity of of, of um, Judah was extant, and Jerusalem was, in fact, a heap of rubble. One of the remarkable things in Babylon, when you read the book of Daniel, how Daniel always measures time by the morning or evening sacrifices of the temple, and we have to remind ourselves that when Daniel was writing that there was no temple, that was in his mind. Several hundred miles away, there's a pile of rubble. And uh, it was later, at the end of the captivity, they were allowed to go back and rebuild. But indeed, Jeremiah's uh, prophecies came vividly, you know, very uh, vividly uh, to pass. His message is not only not received, by the way, we're looking, getting ahead of ourselves here, you can discover it, not only was he not received, but there was a secret plot to assassinate him over this position. And the participants in that plot 
weren't some rival town. It was his hometown. And his family and his friends, he discovers, were in that plot. And we're, we, that, that comes later. But uh, he's, he, has, he does not have a popular message. They not only do not receive his message, they, you know, uh, uh, do the, you know, they, you have to do the obvious thing. You shoot the bearer of bad news, right? <laughs> so uh, they try. Verse 12. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? Why, why is the land perished and burned up like a wilderness that none passes through? And the Lord saith, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked in it, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Balaam being the plural of Baal, that is the, the um, idols. Don't get confused with the guy in numbers. That's a different issue. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, and give them water of gall to drink. The word there, actually, the lanai in the Hebrew means bitter food. It is here translated wormwood. And as we, uh, students of the book of Revelation, what is it, chapter 9, I guess, the word wormwood rings a bell. And those of you that haven't heard, that you might find it interesting, that the Russian word for wormwood is Chernobyl. And so those of you that are uh, interested in, you know, other possible interpretations of Revelation, you can lay that one on yourself in terms of, uh, I assume that the Revelation 9 is translated that uh, the, 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 that the angel, you know, that puts in the waters, what? Chernobyl. So <laughs> you, can, you can run with that if you like. I'll, I'll leave it late. Um, but the, the intent here is clear, that they will have, their waters will be poisoned. And God says in verse 16, And I will scatter them also among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the morning women that they may come, and send for the skillful women that they may come, and let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids, eyelids gush out with waters. Now there's a certain amount of sarcasm there, but what it is referring to here is the use of professional mourners. And in that society, as many other societies have, there was a, a practice of having if you had occasion to mourn, to get it organized, you know. And uh, we do the same thing in this country, actually, when we have a demonstration, whether it's for anti-arms or anti-this or that, and we have these spontaneous uprisings you see on television. I'm very fascinated to discover those are all very well planned and organized and pre-negotiated with the police. I was very dis I was fascinated to discover that. So we have the same kind of uh, what would appear to be uh, administrative hypocrisy, um, but um, anyway, uh, here they're dealing with with the concept of professional mourners. I think we've all run into that in various cultural settings. We've also encountered in the New Testament where was it where was it was it the the uh, Jairus? He say he says you know uh, made them go away and he went and you know uh, took care of that. <laughs> As only God could. 
This idea also uh, in verse 16 is uh, scatter them among the nations is a good springboard where we could go to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. As a couple of examples, uh, there's dozens of those. We won't take the time now because we'll do it. We did it before and we'll do it again a couple of evenings. Um, the classical passages in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of Moses, where God has prophesied that they would be scattered among the nations. What's interesting about this verse 16 is Jeremiah's focus is the Babylonian captivity. That's a singular, although ruling, nation. Here the prophecy is, I will scatter them also among the nations, plural. And um, it's actually a prophecy of the, of, of the diaspora, interestingly enough. And what do I mean by all that? In Isaiah chapter 11, God promises that when he regathers his people the second time, then all kinds of neat things happen. Well, the first time he regathers them is after Babylon. That's after the 70 years captivity. When Daniel reads Jeremiah and discovers it's almost 70 years, he prays and there's a prophecy and indeed gets fulfilled. And indeed, they leave Babylon after 70 years and go back to their land. That's the first regathering of the nation from captivity. The second time is after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And his prediction that the Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Roman legions under Titus Vespasian, it is, of course, and, and uh, that's the famous fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And at that time, the diaspora, as we sometimes call it, takes place, which again, fulfilling prophecy, the, the, uh, the, the Jews are scattered throughout the world where they were scattered until May 14th of 1948. And as you all know the story with the state of Israel being reformed in the land or we, uh, that, that started the, the uh, second regathering. And uh, so... This, uh, this second regathering that Isaiah 11 talks about is really a regathering following that diaspora that I believe verse nine, 16, chapter 9, verse 16 refers to. But again, uh, Jeremiah, whether he really had that in view or not would probably be a theologian's argument. His primary focus clearly in his passion is the captivity in Babylon. He knows and continually hammers on the fact that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is God's instrument. And even though Babylon is Judah's enemy, God is, they are, the, Jeremiah's position is that God is going to use their enemy for their judgment, and they'll be taken into captivity. And that's really his preoccupation, although the Holy Spirit, in his actual selection of language, causes his actual horizon to go far beyond, um, you know, the 6th century before Christ, and rather goes to the 19th century after Christ, huh? Tremendous focal length there. Okay. No, I know it sounded funny, but no, I wasn't being flippant. I remember it is a, a, a focal length one would not uh, be surprised about in, in, in the Word of God. It's a supernatural focal length. It's the one problem about these digressions. I lose my place. Verse 19, the, For the voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How, sh how are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land because our dwellings have cast us out. Now, the word spoiled here is used in a different sense than you and I would use it. How are we spoiled means how they were despoiled or, or uh, pillaged, if you will. Okay. And they're obviously thrown out. In verse 20, and this is, you know, this is a, a rhetorical dialogue as if, they're re, uh, as, if, as if they're responding as they will respond subsequently. It's, it's, a, it's a poet's license to put words in their mouth after the fact, so to speak. See, for uh, this is this is, is is speculating what they're going to say when all this happens. Verse twenty. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, let your 
ear receive the word of his mouth and teach your daughter's wailing and every one her neighbor lamentation. For death is come up into our windows and entered into our palaces to cut off the children from the outside and the young men from the streets. Speak, thus saith the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse upon the open field and as the handful after the harvestmen, and none shall gather them. Whoa. This is um, sometimes called, this area in here is called by some scholars, the poem on the death of the reaper. Uh, po a poem on death of the reaper. Um, it's grim. I mean, it's, it, it, the prophet makes his point. It's um, uh, one of the other overtones of this, it says that they not only will they die, but no one's going to even gather the bodies. Uh, this is something you and I probably wouldn't relate to because you and I figure, gee, if we're gone, we're gone. I mean, most of us have that attitude in terms, I'm saying aside the Christian issue, I'm saying just as, as a secular humanist, you sort of figure it's over, it's over. Uh, to the ancients, the idea of being unburied was unthinkable. One of the great horrors wasn't just to die, but to be unburied. So you, oftentimes you'll see this added that not only are you going to die, guys, but no one's going to even bother burying you. That was viewed as being excessively offensive to the ancients. So that's a that's a, a stylistic thing you and I probably don't relate to, quite apart from the fact that we're resurrection-oriented. I'm dealing with, you know, the, the cultural issue. And, of course, from here we can uh, point out that the wages of sin is what? Death. Romans 6.23. You've read it before. Okay. Uh, all right. Now there's a couple of verses. It's interesting how, how many of these things, um, you know, we, we find Romans 6, 23 sort of echoing in, in verse 22. When we get to verse 23 and 24, we have another theme that Jeremiah deals with the new names. And so much of what was uh, practiced in the form of Saturnalia, these Roman holidays, became embedded in what you and I around the Christmas time. We know that Christ was not born in December. It was sometime probably, uh, maybe as late as October, but... Uh, the, the flocks are still in open field. They don't do that after October in Judea. It's too cold, and so on and so forth. So I won't get into all that tonight. The point is um, we have a very justifiable suspicion of it, all of our secular holidays in that regard, and Christmas being one of them. So having said all that, I still enjoy the nostalgia of a Christmas tree. So I, you know, if that's a, may the Lord forgive me for that. But what Jeremiah is talking about here is relates to Christmas trees only maybe in an, some kind of extreme historical sense, because indeed trimming trees did in fact get embodied in Babylon and did in, and, and it does carry into our culture today in the form of, of the way that many of us celebrate the, the holiday period. But what he's obviously really dealing with is idolatry. And I don't think I'm sort of uh, naive enough to believe we none of us in here are really worship Christmas trees. We might enjoy the nostalgia and the the, the sense of the holiday season and, and, and so forth. But, um, and I think you can, there is some opportunity to do that without getting excessively commercial, but that takes some work and planning. But um, uh, what, what Jeremiah is focusing on here is idolatry. And uh, let's look at this one more time. Hear the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the nations are dismayed at them. The nations were frightened of the planetary motions. 
This was not simply because of some religious system or because some priest in some temple was telling them that when there's a conjunction of this or that, something is going to happen. It happens that the solar system in those early periods was still unstable. There's now a lot of evidence to support the fact that some of these planets came amazingly in their orbital, as they achieved their orbital, orbital stability, passed amazingly close to the planet Earth. That's the reason Jonathan Swift, in his book, Gulliver's Travels, can describe the period, size, and planetary motions of the two moons of Mars when they were, were not discovered by telescopes until 151 years later. Why? Because there were times that Mars apparently passed with the naked, so that these were naked eye visible to the planet Earth, which means that there was a major disruption on the planet Earth. And furthermore, these near passings to the Earth were predictable by the ancients. They could plan their battles around them. That's why the Assyrians camped on the hills of Jerusalem and so forth. And there's a whole thing we get into on that. If you're interested in that subject, I encourage you to get the, the study from the, the, either Joshua 10 or the, uh, the, the special side study we did on that called the study of the solar system. Now, the nations are scared of the signs of heaven for very good reason, because they interfere with their lives. People get killed. Walls tumble. The ancient walls fell. That's why it's hard to find walls. Before. At 701 A.D. is when the, see, Mar, the, the thesis is that the Earth was 360-day orbits, and Mars had 720-day orbits. And they, were, they, had near, they had near passbys, and depending which one was leading the other, was which one picked up energy or lost energy or added or lost days to their orbit. And in 701 AD was the last near pass by, by after which the orbit stabilized. This has to do with orbital resonance, and there's a whole there's a book on that that's in the bibliography that's associated with those tapes. But the point is, is that um, up till 701 AD, the Earth didn't come along very fine with a 360-day calendar. There's 14 different cultures. All the ancient cultures had 360-day calendars up until 701 BC. Something happened that year to cause them to all have to correct their calendars. And everybody does weird things. The Romans add four days, or in a quarter days ultimately. Uh, the Hebrews add a whole month every third year approximately. Not always. <laughs> and, um, and the rabbis argue, why did Hezekiah do it this way than that way? What the rabbis don't argue by, about in the ancient rites, why did he have to do it in the first place? What was wrong with the calendar? Why didn't it work in 702? What's your direction? 700 that it did in 702. Bear in mind, they go backwards at BC. And of course, the whole thing is that, that apparently was the last major flyby. Uh, the, uh, the NASA scientists that published the book point out that uh, the biblical catastrophes appear to be 160-year periods. And so some, they looked and they built computer models and came to the, the Mars hypothesis, which is interesting. And then they discovered this thing in Jonathan Swift, which supports it from a literary point of view. Whole different deal. You could chase that. If you're interested, we'll move on. It's frustrating these things because they're so interesting. I'd love to get into them, and yet I'd do you a disservice because some of you have heard it, and others that really want to get into. In any case, you can you can get the tape. So I'll I'll I probably spent too much time on it already. Let's move on. Verse three: For the customs of the peoples are vain. That's no surprise. Huh? Uh, for one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen and the axe, and they deck it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. See, so his point is what, what what results is the work of their hands. Nothing magic about the tree. They go out and get to, but they they get it, they cut it, they trim it, whatever they do, uh, and then they deck it out with things, and they fasten it with nails that it move not. His point, he's going to build on that later because it, it's nailed down, it can't move. So what can it do for you? It can't carry you anywhere. It can't get around by itself. He's really going to paint the the paint. He's going to paint the picture of idols as being so much cumbersome baggage. 
certainly not something that's a resource, which are assets, not liabilities. He's pointing out that not only are, are they not assets, they're liabilities. That's really one way of describing it. They dig it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers that have moved not. They are upright like the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. His argument here is that it's, it's, it, it's useless. It can't do you any harm. It can't do you any good. That's what he's saying. That happens not to be really true. And, and, and I don't want to make a big thing of this because I don't want to destroy the thrust of what Jeremiah is saying, but just a footnote is that he's dealing here in a poetical summary. To argue that they cannot do evil is wrong because we know from both New Testament and Old Testament revelation that when you worship an idol, you worship Satan. That behind the idols are demons. They are what, what's called in the technical trade an entry. Don't believe for a minute that a Ouija board or something of that nature is harmless superstition. Wrong. They are what's called an entry, and they can cause enormous supernaturally driven evil in a life. So don't regard these artifacts, some plywood and a little thing, what harm can it be? Huh. If you, have, you know, exorcist is one uh, entertainment variation of what was a real co uh, collection of case studies on that very subject. Anyway, William Blatty didn't make that up. It was based on, on case studies. For as much, verse 6, for as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O King of nations? For to thee doth it appertain, for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in their kingdoms there is none like unto thee. But they are altogether stupid and foolish. The stock, the stock is a doctrine of vanities. Silver beaten into plates is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of craftsmen in the hands of the goldsmiths, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. By the way, blue and purple dyes are non-trivial technologies. Oh, I, I, I did not take the trouble of giving digging into all the uh, details. It turns out if you get into the ancient cultures, getting dyed gar you and I take that for granted because we have modern chemistry. They didn't. So these are all very rare special things, silver, gold, and the blue and purple, so forth. Those are expensive commitments of their resources. But the Lord is the true God, and he is the living God, an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. A couple of things that I, I don't want to get too far away from these passages. I was going to go back, but I think we'll, we'll keep moving after me. Just a couple of comments. The, these ideas that the idols are vanity, the actual word is um, like breath without substance, um, and they are a burden to be carried like cumbersome baggage. I made that point. Uh, the word palm tree back here in the King James, verse 5, they are upright like the palm tree. Behind that, the word Hebrew word is tomar, and it's translated palm tree in the King James, but that's um, misleading too because it's more like a pillar, not palm tree. It's a pillar. And what most scholars see in that phrase is what you would call a phallic symbol, that they were trimmed and designed to be a fertility symbol. And so when you see pillars or palm trees, when you see in the Old Testament the phrase called the groves, that sounds like such an innocent thing, sounds like a grove of trees. What they're really talking about is an area typically on the top of a hill 
that where there were trees and they trimmed the tree. They, they made a pagan fertility offering place for that. So it was a, a place of sex orgies and, and such that were involved in the Canaanite sex worship, which had to do with their, their concepts of, of, of trying to encourage fertility of the crops. And, uh, but they were all, that's why God always has his altars never on the hilltops by the tree, never by the groves. He says, what's wrong with having an altar near trees? You're missing the point. Never by the places that have been defiled with these pagan practices. And so there's some phrases in the, in the uh, Old Testament translations that uh, look innocuous enough. It's when you get behind that, you begin to realize there's far more being inferred there, implied there, than, than uh, you and I generally are sensitive to. Now, verse 11 is an interesting verse because it's the only verse in this book that's written in Aramaic or Chaldean. And there's been a lot of a lot of scholars wonder why did Jeremiah Jeremiah obviously knew Chaldean because you know that was just you know, but at the same time uh, why is this in Chaldean and the, and the reason is is because so that even the pagan nations could be indicted by what it says. Thus saith, thus shall ye say unto them under whom the pagan nations, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth, even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. So in other words, our God, the living God, is going to abide forever. But the gods that they're worshiping, these things, are going to be destroyed. And that phrase is, not, is written in language that they can understand. It's in Chaldean. Okay. Verse 12. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. These phrases, you know, it's hard to keep moving here. Do you remember in the book of Revelation how it describes his voice? Like the voice of many waters. Those phrases, when we read them in the book of Revelation, are strange to our ear because they're not New Testament phrases. You're right, they're Old Testament phrases. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.